Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Colin Starger, Professor of Law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. We will discuss his essay, The Argument That Cries Wolfish, which is published in the MIT Computational Law Report. So welcome to the show, Colin. Thanks so much, Brian. It's great to be here. Yeah, I, I'm excited to have you on the show because I thought this was a really interesting and provocative and really timely essay. Uh, but by way of framing it for listeners who may not be so immersed in in criminal justice issues, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what exactly pretrial detention is and why it's such a big problem. Sure, I'd be happy to sort of give that initial frame. As we all know, when somebody is accused of a crime, they're innocent until they're proven guilty of that crime. However, just because they're innocent until proven guilty doesn't mean that they uh, don't have to answer at all to the accusations against them. They're going to have to go to trial. They're going to have to do whatever it is. And for many years, uh, the most standard way to guarantee that somebody would show up for their trial was to give them a money bail. Uh, And so they would have to pay some amount of money. And when they showed up at trial, they'd get the money back. And if they were convicted, they'd go to prison. And if they weren't, they'd go free. Uh, And over time, that basic notion has expanded. And uh, starting with the Supreme Court case in the middle 80s, another practice that had in some ways been there before, but became explicitly blessed, and that was of pretrial detention. Pretrial detention is somebody who's been accused of a crime, but they the nature of the charges against them is serious enough, and there's a, enough worry that they're going to go out and do something bad in the community that they're actually held without any kind of bail or any kind of release condition at all pretrial. Uh, that the, that Supreme Court case involved a man named Tony Salerno who was a, a mob boss, and it was alleged that he had ordered killings from within prison, uh, and he shouldn't go out and continue to run his mob operation. And there was a law that had passed in the federal government that allowed for pretrial detention, and it withstood, in this case, Salerno, it withstood a constitutional attack. And so sometimes the terms pretrial release and bail are used interchangeably. It can be a little bit confusing. Bail can can be used in the sense of anything that happens pre-trial, any kind of release decision that is made. And sometimes bail refers to a monetary bail, a specific amount, and that's when you have things like bail bondsmen and et cetera. And so in the last five or six years across the country, maybe a little bit less than that, maybe four or five years, there has been a big movement to end the practice of assigning unaffordable bails, bails that poor people can't make uh, and they have to go to a bail bondsman to get. There's been a lot of movement around the country to try to end that practice, concurrent with a lot of interest around the ending of unfair fines and fees. There's been quite a lot in the popular media about that as well. And so this is wrapped up in that kind of discussion as well. Well, so how common then is pretrial detention? 
I mean, I got to assume it's only like really super dangerous people like mob boss Tony Salerno who are being detained like this, right? If only it were so, Brian. It's actually extremely common. Uh, and in Maryland, which is where I'm talking to you from and where my practice and study has been concentrated on in the last few years, it's uh, a common indeed. And so we actually did have some bail reform legislation that passed. And it used to be that upwards of 70% of people that came before uh, judges early on in the, in the pretrial release process would be assigned a money bail. Uh, but a very, very large number of those would never be able to make it and they would stay in jail, not being able to make their money bail. And after these reforms occurred, the rule under which the assignment of bail was changed and it essentially said you're not allowed to assign a money bail. But what we've seen is that instead they're just being held outright without bail at all. Um, and so the, the article that I, or the essay that I shared with you and, uh, and that your, your, reader, your listeners will have the opportunity to, to read if they so desire, it actually occurs during that period. Some of it's a little bit before the bail reforms and some of it's a little bit after at the very tail end of it. Um, uh, and so um, uh, the, the bottom line is whether it's characterized as people being imprisoned because they cannot afford a money bail or people being imprisoned because they're being held outright without bail. It's a very, very common practice around the country. It's estimated nationally that about 450,000 to 500,000 people at any given moment are being held pre-trial and are unconvicted. And, uh, you know, anywhere from around 10 million a year, that many people uh, end up spending time pre-trial locked up despite their presumption of innocence. Well, so help me understand why pretrial detention is incompatible with the presumption of innocence. I mean, after all, the police only arrest people and prosecutors only charge people when they think they're guilty, right? So if they think they're guilty, they must be guilty. What's the problem? Well, that's, I think you've uh, uh, very well articulated, and I thank you for doing it, the the common intuition that my article is is very much attempting to uh, break down as an empirical matter. And so uh, there's the question, you know, those of us that are lawyers might say, well, you have not been convicted. So technically you are presumed innocent and therefore you should not have your liberty uh, denied because of that. And there's very clear precedent that says that no one can be punished for a crime that they haven't been found guilty of. And so the idea that uh, to, a, to a lawyer, you know, sort of schooled in all the technicalities of it, the idea that somebody would be locked up for something that they haven't been proved to do yet is, is an anathema. Um, however, for many, many people, and, and, and I articulate this in the article, there is this intuition that that's just an abstract legal technicality. Uh, if they've been accused, they probably did something. And if they're eventually going to be convicted, what difference does it make if they spend a little time while they're technically innocent, and then they kind of get credited that time after they've been found guilty. So that's the intuition. But what I found 
in at least in Maryland, and I have every reason to believe it's not just in Maryland, that that is actually not the case. So uh, when charges are brought, uh, they can later be dropped by a prosecutor. In, in Maryland, we commonly refer to that by its Latin name, nole prosecute, which is, is colloquially known as null pros. And when a prosecutor null process charges, that means she or he or they drop the charges. And what I found in my data set that I looked at in, during this period from 2013 to 2017 in the four largest counties in Maryland was that fully 60% of district court cases, which is the lower court that we have, were cases were ones that were null prost in their entirety. No charges remained at all. Every single one of those charges was dropped. And Brian, here, you, you may have heard, have you ever heard of that statistic that says something like 98% of cases are resolved by guilty plea? I have 100% heard that statistic. And it was one of the reasons I found your papers so incredibly shocking. And, and that statistic, though, doesn't take into account all the cases where the charges were dropped ahead of time, right? And so people have this notion that there's this extraordinarily high rate of finding people guilty. But that statistic is entirely uninformed by what's going on with null process around the country uh, and around Maryland in particular. And so criminal justice practitioners are well aware of this, but that's not something that's known outside, uh, you know, outside of the legal academy for the most part or outside of of the criminal justice practice world. So when you hear a stat like 98% of cases are resolved on a guilty plea, that's only for ones that are actually resolved as opposed to being dropped. And so my study looked at that, you know, that, that uh, case in particular, that, that what happens with null pros charges and to sort of cut to the punchline in some way, I found that uh, over 12,000 in just a five-year period, over 12,000 people in Maryland alone spent an average of 46 days or a median of 39 days locked up only to have every single one of the charges against them dismissed in their entirety, to have every single one of those charges in all process. So I call that unjustified prosecution because the presumption of innocence that they were theoretically in, you know, had wrapped, that they were theoretically wrapped in, that presumption of innocence turned out to be empirically warranted because all the charges against them were dropped. Yet despite that, they were held in pretrial detention for a total of just under 1,500 years collectively. Right? Uh, it's a, a massively disruptive on people's lives. And of course, it only really ever happens to poor people, and it mostly happens to poor people of color. And they, you can't hold a job if you are in jail for 39 days. Uh, you can't pay the rent when uh, you are in jail uh, for that amount of time. Your family can't depend on you. It's massively, massively disruptive. And yet it is entirely too common. Uh, and that was one of the reasons that I wanted to write this paper because I had seen these numbers in my practice and I decided to systematically really, really study it and see if what I saw kind of anecdotally was borne out when I looked at it systematically. And in fact, it was.
So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the data sets you used and the methodology of the study, because I thought it was a really um, sophisticated use of the data in this context. And and I wonder if you could also talk about the fact that you've made all of the data and materials available to anyone else who wants to look at and use them. Absolutely. That's something that I would say I'm quite proud of, the way that I chose to proceed with this. I should say that way back when, when dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was a young college graduate, I worked in Silicon Valley and I was a computer programmer and I did a lot of work with databases. And eventually I I was not interested in that and I I left and I joined the law. But uh, my legal work started to become more embroiled in data. And I came to learn about a scraped database of all Maryland court cases um, called Case Search. And this was launched by a, a gentleman named Matthew Steubenberg, uh, then working for Maryland Volunteer Legal Services. And what he did was, you know, Maryland has an open court records database that you're allowed to, you know, anybody in the public is allowed to look at. However, it is just absolutely terrible for searching. But what Matthew had done was pulled this down into a, a relational database, which made searching it very easy. Now, uh, it's a human-entered court records. It's subject to a lot of error. There was a lot of cleaning up that needed to happen. But basically what I did is I designed a whole series of uh, SQL queries, which is the language that's used to access that kind of relational database, to pull in data. And then I cleaned it up using Python. Uh, and then I put it all up uh, in a way that people can interact with uh, and put all the code that did everything up onto GitHub. And that's one reason why I was very excited to be working with the MIT Computational Law Report, which is either law.mit.edu. They're interested in this kind of open data, open source approach to scholarship. And, uh, and I am interested in that open data, open source approach to scholarship. And so uh, the article itself contains links to various different ways that, that, that I'll call them at this point users or readers is another way to think of them can interact with and inspect the data for themselves and, and see that I'm not just making this up. Um, but returning to what the, the, the data are actually about, there's three basic sets. Um, uh, the largest set is the set of all district court cases that were decided in the relevant period in those four counties, which are Baltimore City, Baltimore County, Montgomery County, and Prince George's County. And then from that, using some methodology, I was able to isolate cases where every single one of the charges were nullprost, right? And that was didn't include cases where, you know, there might have been seven charges and all but one of them was nullprost and the other was given some other disposition, which didn't even have to be guilty. So I was Every step of the way, I was very, very conservative in making sure that I was only looking at cases that very rigorously you know, could not be questioned um, uh, as to the outcome that happened. And then the innermost data set is one uh, are ones where not only were all charges nullprost, but the entire time from the charge, the, the moment the charge was brought against them to the moment the charges were nullprost, they were incarcerated, and that's we're able to follow that given some of the coding that's in the Maryland uh, court records. 
and uh, based on that, I was I was able to do all the calculations to come up with the, you know, the median and the and the mean and the total number of days and et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff. So again, all those calculations and manipulations are, are freely available up on GitHub and are described in the appendices of the paper. So the data can tell us what happened. And frankly, it's really, really troubling. But it seems like, at least on some level, the data can't tell us why it's happening, or maybe can't at least can't tell us all about why it's happening. I wonder if you have thoughts about sort of the incentives for prosecutors or the institutional kind of objectives that would cause something like this to happen. Because it seems incredibly troubling that people would be incarcerated for such long periods of time and then just the prosecution just fizzles out entirely. Yeah. So I, I would never want to discourage prosecutors from dropping charges that aren't meritorious. However, the, the problem that we have, and we live in an era of mass incarceration, and I call this particular phenomenon mass pre-trial incarceration, and it's one of the biggest drivers of mass incarceration overall. But the fundamental problem is just volume. We have way too many cases that come into the criminal justice system, and we punitively treat those, we treat too many of those cases punitively. And, uh, and so the problem starts with policing, uh, and it continues all the way through prosecutorial practice, judicial practice, and then even post-conviction practice. And our, our very, very long sentences mean that people can spend very, very long periods of time in, in prison or jail. Uh, and it's not always warranted, even if they are guilty, at least in my view. Uh, and so you have this kind of structural problem of our society turning to the criminal justice system to try to solve all manner of problems that I don't think really need to be solved by the criminal justice system and don't need to be solved through punishment. But when you have a kind of law and order political mentality and uh, and it becomes a winning political issue, when you have the kinds of deep class and racial divisions that, that we have in our country, it's quite possible for people that are kind of policymakers who don't see this reality, this day-to-day reality of people having charges against them and getting incarcerated only to have all of those charges dropped, it just doesn't cross their mind. And they don't really understand that it's going on. And of course, they have that intuition that you and I were discussing at the beginning, which is that most of those people are probably guilty anyway. And so one of the reasons why I wrote the paper was to try and uh, dispel that intuition and then, of course, because I'm a law professor, I couldn't help but make a doctrinal argument as well. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, because I think the the data really makes out very convincingly the argument that there's an awful lot of factually innocent people that the system doesn't even really believe it has a reasonable basis to prosecute in the first place, who are nevertheless being detained for you know really unconscionably long periods of time, why isn't that a violation of their constitutional rights? Why isn't it a due process violation or a violation of the presumption of innocence? Well, I'll, ex- I'll try to explain or answer that question first by saying what the standard line is, and then by saying why I think that standard line is wrong. Uh, and so 
the the standard line though is that they've had process there has been a hearing um and that hearing it was decided that they either there was either clear and convincing evidence that they were too dangerous to release uh or that there was a, a high risk of their non-appearance at trial uh and therefore they were you know that detention decision is is what came down right or they were given a bail that they couldn't afford for that there's a different set of constitutional questions and there's arguments about whether unaffordable bails are constitutional or not constitutional something that i've also written about but let's just focus on folks that are detained outright and so the the standard argument is that they've been given process and there's no guarantee that the process will be right and uh and then another uh, the question that you raised around the presumption of innocence uh, this is one, and this is where the title of the, the paper comes from, the argument that cries Wolfish. Wolfish was a Supreme Court case that was handed down around 1972. And in that case, then justice, before he was chief justice, Rehnquist made it kind of a passing statement to the idea that the presumption of innocence has no applicability pretrial. And that was because the Wolfish case itself was dealing with pretrial conditions. It was a, essentially a lawsuit challenging the conditions of confinement for pretrial detainees in a, a New York um, a jail. And, uh, and they said the presumption of innocence has nothing to do with whether these conditions are fair or not fair. And that was kind of a passing comment, but it's been seized on by courts and commentators ever since as some kind of transcendental truth that the presumption of innocence, you know, logically only applies during that short period of trial when literally a jury has been impaneled or a judge is acting as a fact finder and they're coming to the question of weighing the evidence and that the presumption of innocence really is just another way of saying that the prosecution has to prove a case at trial beyond a reasonable doubt. And I spend the last part of the paper explaining why that is just very, very wrong. It's wrong as a matter of originally interpreting what Wolfish was all about. It's wrong as a matter of understanding how the doctrine has developed since then. And it's entirely unnecessary analytically uh, and morally. And so, you know, I can I can go into that if it makes sense. But that's the basic idea. The justification that they offer is the only process that you need is the a, pro, a hearing where this is aired out, and it doesn't need to get it right most of the time. And I would say that's crazy, right? You need, you really need to recalibrate and give the presumption of innocence some kind of gusto because this this is such an affront to it. Uh, and there are there's room in the doctrine for that to happen. Well, so I wonder if you could talk about, you know, what to your mind the presumption of innocence ought to require in relation to pretrial detention. In other words, if we were to act in a way that was consistent with the purpose and meaning of due process and the presumption of innocence, what would pretrial detention look like, if anything? So I'd say this with the, the, the phrase that I use, the, the fancy pants, I guess it's a German word uh, in the paper is Grundnorm, the idea that the presumption of innocence is sort of the fount from which many other legal standards derive. And, uh, and so 
it's the presumption of innocence, I argue, that requires that you need to have, you know, reasonable suspicion um, uh, to pull somebody over for, let's say, a Terry stop, right? It's uh, the presumption of innocence that requires you can't detain somebody pre-trial unless you have clear and convincing evidence. That was the standard that was enunciated in Salerno. And it's the presumption of innocence, similarly, that requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt at trial. But at each of those stages, the presumption of innocence applies, and it just sets up what the, the standard needs to be. But not only does it have to be kind of articulated in that way, it has to have real meaning, right? Uh, again, in Salerno, the, the case that upheld the, the whole idea of a pretrial detention, preventative detention, as it's also known, they said, liberty is the norm and pretrial detention should be the carefully limited exception. Now, when you have such widespread application of pretrial detention uh, to the to the extent where thousands of people every year are being held only to have all of their charges dropped, it's pretty clear to me that it's not a carefully limited exception. So you need not only, I mean, the, the standard, the idea that there needs to be clear and convincing evidence of dangerousness uh, before you detain someone, I can live with that. I you know, Justice Thurgood Marshall wrote a compelling dissent in the Salerno case saying how there should never be any pretrial detention at all. And I, I agreed with him then. I would have preferred if he had won. He didn't win. And frankly, there's no way we're going back on that now. Um, there are enough people, uh, even if it's numerically very low, even if there's a very few people fall into this category, but there are enough outright dangerous killers that it, that it makes sense that they shouldn't be able to go just because they can make a bail. Uh, and so we probably are stuck with some form of a preventive detention or pretrial detention regime. But I believe that it should only be imposed after there's a real meaningful hearing. Brian, I've, I've listened to and I've litigated um, uh, these hearings in Maryland, and it's not one where any evidence is really presented. It's often one where the judge simply reads what the nature of the charges are and assumes, well, that's a serious case. That's your, your therefore, um, I'm going to hold you. Uh, and the whole thing is over in three to five minutes. And that is uh, not enough time to really establish whether there's clear and convincing evidence that somebody is so dangerous or poses such a high risk of non-appearance at trial that they should be detained. Um, but to do that, to do proper hearings in those rare cases that deserve it and really to make pretrial detention a carefully limited exception, you're going to run into that same volume problem that I was talking about before. And you're really, because if you were really holding those kind of hearings that even went from instead of five minutes to just 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, the court would almost grind to a halt because it's so common, right? Uh, and so there's going to have to be adjustments that occur in the public discourse. Um, if we are serious as a nation about decarceration and trying to really live up to the idea that we're the land of the free and the home of the brave, then we're going to have to be brave and not be fearful of people, knowing that occasionally there will be folks that go out and commit crimes while on pretrial release. 
But knowing that we are stopping what I think is a different kind of crime, not one that's in the books, but the crime of locking up so many thousands of people every year, totally disrupting their lives, only to have all the charges against them dropped when the presumption of innocence should have protected them from that in the first place. So, Colin, in closing, and in relation to what you just said, I mean, it struck me that given the volume that you're talking about, it seems like it would be really difficult, if not impossible, to sort of expect judges to meaningfully address each one of the existing pretrial detentions on the merits and really give people the consideration that they deserve as as a practical matter. I wonder if you think there are any things that we could do kind of institutionally or structurally to change the incentives of police and prosecutors around initiating this process in the first place. Because it seems to me like the best way to solve the the problem is for it never to get the ball rolling in the first place. I agree with you on that. And there's a lot of scholars and practitioners that are are thinking about that precise problem that you, you articulate and trying to think of solutions along the line that you're suggesting. And so, for example, a, a colleague of mine, um, uh, Zena Makar, has proposed essentially cooking in uh, money damages for folks that this happens to. Uh, and we know that once counties or uh, you know, municipalities start to have to pay for improperly locking people up like that, they're probably going to change their practice. Other folks have suggested rule changes um, I'm interested in the in the public discourse side of it, in getting people to understand what's really going on and understand the devastating effects of this pretrial mass incarceration, so that they push their legislatures or judiciary to to make more fulsome decisions, and then don't completely freak out when one person um, does something bad. Um, just like you know, we're not going to pull all airplanes out of the sky because occasionally there's a plane crash. We should figure out why there was a plane crash, but we're just not going to stop the, stop the process of flying. Or, or certainly we don't do that with, uh, with car crashes. There has to be a little bit of adjustment of what our notion of, of safety is. So a lot of people are thinking about it. It's definitely very hard. If it wasn't hard, I suspect we would have you know figured this one out already. But part of it, I believe, is that people don't really know the full picture. And that's what I'm hoping to contribute as a way of understanding the stakes a little bit more and what's really going on. Well, Colin, thanks so much for coming on the show, sharing your excellent paper and really fascinating and important data set and analysis. Uh, I wish you all the best of luck with this project going forward. Thanks so much for having me. It was great getting to speak with you.
one morning Another blue come falling down It was early one morning The blues come falling down I'm all locked up in jail Lord, and I'm prison bound It was all last night I sat in my cell and bone It was all last night Ooh, I sat in my cell and bone Thinking about my baby Great God and my Happy home. Now, baby, you will never see my smiling face again. Baby, we will never see my smiling face again. You can always remember that your daddy has been your friend. At my trial, baby, you could not be found. At my trial, baby, you could not be found. It's too late, mistreating woman, cause you know I'm prison bound. 